Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. Today with Willem, we're discussing uh, courts and sustainable mandatory requirements, as well as recognition in academia. Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening, liking, commenting, subscribing. We really appreciate you helping us out putting the SEC Public Procurement Podcast on the forefront of discussing procurement issues. I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Willem, with me today, like always. And we are up for a treat today as our main We'll be discussing mandatory requirements, specifically in context of sustainable public procurement. So are are we moving towards mandatory sustainable public procurement, the role of courts in that regards? Um, So let us kick it off with the subject matter of of our main. But let's start with some food also, talking about main. Good idea. Um, Yes. Yes. What, what, how are you feeling today, Willem? In context of, of, <laughs> in context sort of, of missing, food. <laughs> in context of food, I mean, like missing all these travels. It's now, it's been uh, quite a while that we've been anywhere that I think since we actually started this podcast, we did not have a chance to see each other in person. No, even um, though I feel like we talk to each other nearly every day, but that's a, that wasn't a point of critique, by the way. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's been, it's been a whole year. It's, it's crazy how, I also, when I think about conferences and milestones in, in the academic work that we do, or when I, even in my private life, 2020 kind of fades away. Like you think, oh, that was last year, but then it's actually two years ago. So anyways, mm-hmm. it's also crazy to think that uh, we're nearly hitting our one year um, anniversary of podcasting together. So that's really, really cool, but yeah, let's not get ahead of ourselves because I think that's in May, right? That That's our one year anniversary. Yeah. Probably when we actually recorded, that's true. Um, but that brings me um, to to thinking about when we will have a chance actually to see each other, to participate in some of those conferences. Uh, we have been working with the digital ones quite extensively. We are just joining um, our two colleagues next week uh, from the moment that we're recording this on another event online. And definitely this aspect that really inspired us to start this podcast, the type of conversations that we have, we didn't have those in a, in a long time. We didn't have that whining and dining experience. Um, so if you could choose out of, you know, um, any, any possibilities, which of the conferences that you would particularly look forward to actually be able to join in person? Is, is something sticking out in your head out of those that are fairly regular every couple of years? Um, that's a good good question, actually. I haven't really thought about that because conferences have totally... Conferences are now me sitting in my attic between my washing machine and the spare bed. Yeah. But, um, I mean, the, the Global Revolution Conference in Nauticum is always fun because that's like quite a big conference because you get to see a lot of people. Now, there's downsides to that as well, clearly, but uh, that's one... 
Um, it's good networking opportunity, right? Sure. It's sort of, you know, in this context, I also was really thinking that one of the events that I would want to participate, I wonder if you ever consider that or, or heard about it, is this Ipsera conference. Yeah. So it's not really a legal conference as such, but I was thinking that it would be really cool to get involved with them um, because I think that that would really open our world also to totally different people uh, looking at procurement from very different <laughs> angles. It's always get it's always nice to get excited about meeting new people. That's that's definitely so, one thing yeah. I look forward to. Even though I find everyone's really getting into the zone of like catching up via coffee online. So that's also quite a normal thing to just say, hey, um, I saw an article that you published and I wanted to reach out. Let's have a coffee, but you have to make your own coffee and I'll bring mine. Yeah. So that's very nice. It, um, it for sure became a bit less awkward, right? To do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Cool. Let's, let's move to let's, uh, mandatory let's requirements. Move to the, absolutely. To the main of today. Um, so, Willem, I would want to ping pong that topic towards you. Um, you published uh, fairly recently an interesting work on that. So, um, we have been working on some aspects of it and discussions on that for some time right now. But before we dive into details, what is your general um, viewpoint on this, uh, you know, from, from normative standpoint? So should we, should we really move towards more mandatory requirements of sustainability within public procurement processes or you actually are not a fan? Oh, is this a yes or no question? I think that it's a yes or no, but also you. Is, I, is there I'm room for differentiation? Okay. Um, I, I think we're for a number of reasons. It would be very interesting to look at mandatory requirements. Let's put let's put it this way. I think we're not there yet into developing, or at least to, uh, in terms of research, to backing what is the right course of action. I think we're not there yet, but um, uh, and. Perhaps we can also make a link with the, the episode, one of the earlier episodes that we did about the EU Green Deal, where we really discussed this move from the EU public procurement law being mostly accommodating for sustainable public procurement, as in that it provides legal possibilities to procure sustainable outcomes, labels, award criteria, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're reaching a discussion point where we're looking at, okay, maybe the member states or the uptake of green public procurement isn't where we want it to be. And we should actually be looking at a more forceful mandatory role of EU public procurement law, which in which the law actually obliges contracting authority to authorities to procure green outcomes. Um, and um, I mean, what's, what's difficult about the question when you say should, should we, I also find it's difficult for us as, as lawyers, right? This is not just a legal question, uh, but it could be potentially very effective to make it obligatory, right? Because if it is obligatory, mm. perhaps we can really fast track um, the development towards a green society instead of the law always being criticized for, you know, following te technological and societal developments. Perhaps mm. now the law should be at the forefront of, of the debate. And this is also an interesting take, right? Because I wonder actually whether we are not somehow from legal standpoint and, and European procurement standpoint not standing in the way in certain certain aspects with the rules and, and provisions that we have. And, and I think that it's also really difficult to discuss this 
in an abstract, extremely broad context of all procurements. I do think that this is something so specific to different sectors. So just to follow up on what you said, I would make just maybe two, three comments. I think that one issue is for sure we are ultimately scientists, right? I know the legal field is a little bit lesser science than others, but some we say, are in some our, say, allegedly, yes, right? Allegedly, we but don't in agree. our capacities, um, we are here as as academics, as scientists, and we believe in science. And I think there is enough science, particularly in context of environmental issues and climate change, that we are in a climate crisis. So from that perspective of really um, addressing this, I, I strongly believe personally and, and also with my work, I believe normatively that part of public interest is protecting environment too. And through that, it needs to find its way also to procurements. And it's type of a little bit all hands on deck, right? In all legal areas, we see a really outcome of great projects in recent years, even on green environmental competition law, green economics, all these different aspects. So it's not specific to procurement. And then the second comment that I wanted to make is also sectorally, it's so specific and it's also connected so much to whether we are at the forefront, whether we are actually limiting something or are we standing in the way? And I think food sector is particularly interesting because, you know, if you really want genuinely um, organic, sustainable food, very often, very often, it will mean local. Now, I those are not synonymous, right? Not every uh, supplier and all the local foods will be more sustainable. A good idea, like if you want to have something, let's say in Nordics that requires, you know, you uh, having different veggies uh, continuously under a lot of electrical lamps and all this heating, et cetera, et cetera, versus let's say um, shipping through railway tomatoes from Italy or Spain, that actually probably will be more sustainable. But there is yeah. this presumption that a lot of times um, organic, sustainable food ultimately means protectionism and localism. And those are not synonymous. Uh, but at the same time, the fact that you cannot just as a hospital school just buy directly from, you know, a local agriculture, um, from local farms, uh, some I heard many times, and I and I feel for that 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 we sometimes stand in the way with uh, as with public the way, procurement lawyers. Yes, yeah. right. Um, so I, I for sure it's it's very interesting what you're saying. In which point we are at the forefront and we can enforce something that we really need to get going on, yeah. and in which point actually we are somehow almost artificially. Um, Closing the doors on certain transactions on in certain sectors that makes from true sustainability perspective actually a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. And I think also this this debate about the um, the question should we should be a debate that we have very broadly between public procurement scientists, supply chain managers, economists, lawyers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but then the next question, say, say, right, just hypothetically also, because we only have, you know, we only have 30 minutes for a podcast episode, even though we never stick to it, <laughs> say, say, say it's a good idea, right? Then it's up to us to identify, I think, as legal scholars, what are the roots and what are the possible advantages and downsides from a broad perspective of each of those roots, right? And, um, 
I would say the starting point of that is is to see what's already been happening, like what's mm, already where been, we are, right? yeah, where are we at, where are we at, right? And um, in in previous episodes, we also looked at like, and this is the EU Green Deal episode, like what are the obligations that are currently there? Say the the obligation to reject abnormally low tenders that are achieved through, say, forced child labor. Um, but there's also a lot of stuff that's going on at the member state level. Um, so there's developments in, in Denmark. It, Italy has had quite uh, a tradition of having uh, mandatory minimum criteria in, in public procurement procedures for different sectors, for textiles, for ICT. But also um, in the Netherlands, we've had a um, an obligation to create as much societal value and I stress that point, um, through the spending of public money via public procurement procedures, right? So Mm -hmm. what is societal value in that regard? But it is a means to make it mandatory for contracting authorities to, um, uh, to procure sustainable outcomes, right? So when we're looking, I think, at this, uh, this EU development, Right. Let's. My first point would be let's not forget what we already have on the member states and what the experiences are that we've gained from that. Right. I think yeah. Let's the, learn. Right. Yeah, let's yeah, learn sure. already what has been there because for sure I think that conclusion of our two episodes that somehow have been touched on sustainability issues. That's the one on Green Deal or the one that we did on Article eighteen point two, the sort of sustainability principle in yeah. quotation. Uh, then, then we know that. There is a lot of opportunities right now. There is lots of possibilities. There are quite questionable obligations that are then even more limited by general other general principles, let's say, such as proportionality. Um, and the question is then also when we go to this more national or local level, well, that also a whole different setup really kicks in because this public interest broadly understood the aspect of the societal value that you mentioned. But I think in different member states, the language may be different, but ultimately we are focusing on the fact that you're spending taxpayers' money, it's public money, you are somehow obliged to create something good um, in efficient manner uh, of spendings um, within within your within your member state, and what are the consequences of that really, right? And that kind of brings us to this second layer of this conversation: what is the role of courts? How courts interact with all this um, all this mandatory, obligatory, potential minimum requirements or other provisions set up on the more local uh, national levels. Yeah, for sure. Because I think what it would do, and this is where uh, I think our role would be vital as an academic community, is if we're changing, if, if this, I, I believe this is really a paradigm change, right? So for going from possibility to mandatory requirements in terms of sustainability will reshuffle what the individual actors on the playing board of public procurement, what their role is. And what I mean by that is, Say the legislator decides to really move from how you purchase to what you purchase. The question then is, what is the ideal, most effective legal room for maneuver for uh, contracting authorities, right? To make decisions that are in society's best interest, right? Tailor-made decisions, perhaps. What is then the role of economic operators as actors that 
are asked to provide those sustainable outcomes, but also perhaps to enforce them, right? So say that contracting authority has not followed the rules. What does that contracting authority then do with a claim of an economic operator that states this tender, the way it's set up, is not sustainable enough? Mm. And finally, as a closing piece, and this is where it all where all of these actors come together in like in the courts. Um, what do courts do? Um, are they the ones that then should decide this is not sustainable enough, or should they just say this rule has been violated, um, and that in the end means that it's not sustainable or compliant mm. with these mandatory criteria, right? So I think it's quite a fundamental, and every time I say fundamental, I realize that we lose some of our um, some of our listeners. But I think it is quite important to think about this because, in a way, it's different than just merely saying procedurally you have missed a certain deadline or this criterion is not in compliance with the principle of equality. This touches upon other aspects that are. I think, you know, also that it's just, it's uh, not that it's controversial, but it's so complex because so many different things come into play, right? Some of the things when you mention, the more obligation you start to include, if that's on national level or on EU level, the more um, hesitance there will be towards towards introducing things like that because one of the things that will be scream and rightfully so, it's among other things, subsidiarity principle, right? Yep. So why, why like leave us the space of a discretion because it's not one size fits all. We have such a different member states. Even if you look at it on national level, different regions, right? Um, have different interests, different focuses. But I think um, in context of introducing truly mandatory provisions, there are two arguments that are somehow conflicting. But I think both very important to consider. On the one hand side, argument could be, well, the market will react because, you know, being uh, part of procurements for many companies is a viable source of income. If you push the market the right direction, yes, there will be, as with any change, there will be a moment in which, uh, in which there's some challenges along the way, but but you can make the shift, yeah, right? The, the trendsetter role of governments, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Somehow creating, impacting the government, right? The 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 bad side of it is also, if it, that is done in the not competitive matter, if the government or the legislator does it really unsuccessfully or, um, you know, um, not not particularly uh, rightfully, then that can also cause a lot of problems along the way, right? There is there is for sure an argument to say that governments shouldn't in, get involved in market too much, but then a other argument to all of that that is very easily shown because I often think lately, you know, about labels. I think that, for example, requiring mandatory labels in different procurements could be really good from perspective of contracting authorities. Because then you say, we want all this, but we don't need to do the due diligence. We don't need to uh, sort of gain so much capacity in a particular area. We kind of outsource it and someone is doing that. And that's great. So I think that that could really simplify the life for contracting authorities. But the issue of that is, and also a consequence of introducing really mandatory provisions, uh, will be the most harmful for small and medium enterprises, right? Because some of those labels, again, to put it in a specific example, are very expensive. Mm -hmm. Onerous so, to, to get, yeah. 
Yeah, so you know, it's at the same and how big our market, our European market is when it comes to small and medium enterprises. So how we can do it in a smart way, did you actually not limiting access for those companies really to procurement markets, right? Um, for sure, that's that definitely also an attention point because this is kind of the route that Denmark's on, right? To really focus on making labels obligatory. And that's yeah. that's interesting in a way because that... Um, it, there's benefits to 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 that option, just like there would be benefits to saying, um, and downsides clearly to saying, look, it's like oh, you have to award a contract based on life cycle costing, unless, right? So I think we but both tend to agree that life cycle costing is a very interesting avenue to to explore in terms of sustainability um, for uh, like a brighter future, right? Um, but the downside it's it's very difficult to implement that in practice if you're a small procuring a- entity to really go about assessing all the data setting up the frameworks etc right i think that there is a huge amount of need of uh you know professionalization collecting really good practices and sort of training right because this is i to be honest i think law um yeah i know that we're moving and we're discussing really this move towards more mandatory provisions but i think that the law is pretty good i don't think that we have bad law i think that mainly what we talking about it's also behavioral change right and the lack of this and and you know life cycle costing i know that we're discussing it and i'm a huge uh, fan but i also just think that this economically makes sense right because you really then truly know how much you pay for something and let's not even go as broad as last life cycle costing let's just look at total cost of ownership or let's even look at you know cost and quality because again if you look on st- statistics the lowest price still is 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 the king right yeah very dominant yeah. the best yeah but what do you think then because i think going back to our discussion on courts what i'm quite interesting what i tend to see analyzing some things also here in denmark and another member state often questions that i ask is when I hear that something is obligatory, so a true lawyer's um, angle to that, I'm like, so what are the consequences of not obliging? And very often, actually, there is not really any, ultimately. So if there is not, if it's sort of a type of debt provision that is not applicable, that is Mm -hmm. not executed, uh, it's the same thing with, you know, greenwashing, right? If you put something in contracts and there are breaches, but you don't do anything really about that, or you actually don't check it, then 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 that's not truly mandatory for me, right? If there is no consequences. So I think that then we're going to this point that you, that you made, which is that courts really also have a role here to play. And we particularly also can see that in context of this Tim case that we discussed um, in one of our previous episodes, which is court says some... Big things, cardinal value, right? Sustainability being cardinal value, but does not really lay down the grounds of what are the consequences, what we do with that, what happens. We definitely lack a sort of helping hand to understand what is the due process required from from, from us. Um, because of course we can go over the board and it can be totally unproportionate what we may ask from the suppliers, let's say. So where you see the role of courts really in context of these considerations? I think also reflecting on the Tim case, but also on what's been going on in the Netherlands with this this one this Article 1.4 of the Dutch Public Procurement Act, um, in which that obligation to procure as much societal value as possible for public expenditure. 
Um, I, I would tend to say it, it's not the the, the the courts aren't at fault. The courts are just dealt a ba- bad hand uh, from the legislator. Out what to do with it. Yeah. And that's often I find, um, uh, yeah, what's what's tricky. And just to, just to use that Dutch example, so the law says you need to um, contracting authorities need to uh, create as much societal value as possible for their public money. What's difficult is no one really knows what societal value is, right? You just mentioned the word public interest. Makes a lot of sense. We have that too. Algemeen belang, you know, that, that, that would, that's very broad. And there's miles of books written that have been written about what the public interest is, right? Um, you kind of can chug almost everything under it. Exactly. And that's, I think, the difficulty of it then. So uh, where I think the, le- the Dutch legislator did not help the courts is because it de- first defined it as economic savings when it was tabled during the discussions in parliament. And later on, it was referred to as a yeah, uh, best price quality ratio, tailor-made. It, so that left room for everything, right? So then what happened is clearly I understand that some economic operators looked at this provision and thought, well, based on this article, I think they violated this article uh, because the setup of a tender isn't uh, doesn't create as much societal value as possible, right? So really we're putting the economic operator in a role that enforces the public interest as they define it, right? So then the courts are faced with the question like, one, I think they should be limited by the the, the, the question of, are we really stepping into the stone of the executive branch, right? Or the, 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 the area of the executive branch? Are we moving on to their seat? Like we don't want to make the decisions that a contracting authority should be making. So just to give you a clear example of one of the cases, because there's about three, four handful of cases about this, um, uh, about this provision is, so it was a tender at the court of North Holland and um, it, they had, included a, a criterion of um, waste separation after it was collected. So say the plastics that you put into your bin, they get separated afterwards instead of you having to put them in a separate bin and it's separately collected. Now, apparently there's a benefits to that because us humans are terrible at identifying what plastic is and what plastic can actually yeah. be recycled, mm-hmm. right? So apparently most of the soft plastics, you can't actually use that much. So the, the, if in that specific tender, you would get um, plus points for offering that type of post-separation uh, in, in, in the execution of the contract. If you wouldn't, you would get deductions, right? So you would mm-hmm. get a deduction from your point. However, what this tender has said, well, we can offer it and then we won't get that deduction. But the problem is, is actually it costs so much more that we'll lose out on a lot of points in terms of the price. So in the end, uh-huh. if you offer it, it actually drops your um, your total points um, mm-hmm. instead of not offering it and then having the benefits of the price, right? So then the court kind of... So ref- in the end of the day, it's better for you to not offer it. Exactly. Because even what you lose is still putting you kind of on exactly. price point further. Mm-hmm. And that's the issue. So basically, then the court was faced with the question, okay, can 1.4 provide sufficient legal basis to challenge this? Um, and it referred to the legislative discussions, right, in, in, in Parliament and said, well, it's tailor-made, it's, you know, it's, it's supposed to be best value ratio. Um, and the, the conclusion was is that the court said, well, there's, it, this article corresponds, 
and that's a literal reference, correspondeert, corresponds mm-hmm. um, to Article 2114 of the Dutch uh, Public Procurement Act, which in fact merely contains the award criteria, which is an implementation of Article 67 of the, of the directive. So what the court kind of says, if you tender, you are achieving as much societal value, value as po- possible. So if you use award criteria... Of- Tendering. By exactly. fact of tendering. Okay. By mm-hmm. just merely using award criteria, you're in fact. So what does this do? Um, it, it means, and this is what we concluded, or, and when I say we, I mean Gerike Baumann, a PhD candidate at our institute. In, uh, Your in public, co-authors, right? Co-author, exactly, yeah. of this public uh, procurement law review article. is That means that this article is mere symbolism. Mm. Right. It means that it has I no value. That's what I really worry, you know, to large extent about this 18.2 that we have that we already discussed. Yeah, like, in the directive. Yeah. They are, yeah, to what extent they are really true provisions. But, you know, on that topic um, that you indicated, it also brings me to one more issue that somehow needs to be uh, really addressed. And that is from perspective of contract law, because as you mentioned, what happens to the role of economic operator and whether they are actually um, acting uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that is uh, requiring from the supplier, from the private actor to enforce public interest. And that ultimately also really sits at core of the center that I'm affiliated to, Center for uh, Private Governance. When we look also from contract perspective on this notion, uh, well, from contract law perspective, this this is a little bit problematic, right? Because the public interest is the supply. Is the private company even equipped, obliged, uh, where there should be additional price on this? How this should look like really that company that ultimately is uh, in many cases fully focused on profit, unless we're talking about social enterprises, suddenly right now is also responsible for uh, ensuring that public interest and what that means on contractual basis. So for example, are you really in a grave, um, um, I'm missing a word right now. Are you really, you know, sort of in a breach of your contract, whether you delivering services or supplies, everything is fine, but this aspect that could be considered of a public interest somehow, something is tipped somewhere around there, right? Uh, is that really, let's say, a type of breach of a contract, governmental contract, that can lead to termination, for example? And that is very interesting, uh, maybe a little bit abstract, because on the other hand side, as we both know, there is no interest on contracting authority side to terminate contract almost never, because mm. no one wants to go through all the process, right? But is this role of the suppliers, how, how that changes? And I think that... Um, having conversation of several of my uh, contract law uh, colleagues, um, they look at this very skeptically uh, from contract law perspective of, of, you know, sort of morphing this role of private, um, private supplier, right? So that's, that's interesting also because um, if, if I look at the Dutch context again, um, so basically most of the jurisprudence um, about this provision is very limited in terms of what it actually means. It's symbolic legislation. What is interesting is that the Dutch uh, Committee of Public Procurement Experts once said, well, it actually contains a bifold duty. So it means that the, um, uh, or a bifold onus of proof, right? It's a duty of care with a bifold 
onus of proof. And that means that the, okay, you can claim that you've, that this article has been violated, one, but you actually then need to prove it. That links it, it links up with what you were saying, right? That economic operator needs to prove that this is not in the public interest. And then the contracting authority would need to respond to that also proving again that they did, right? I think that's that's a very difficult uh, discussion because you're actually asking courts to to value proof, right? What is more sustainable than others? One, do they have the expertise as courts? And two, it also depends on national procedural law if they can also use expert witnesses, right? This is very yeah. uncommon in the public procurement context, in the Netherlands at least, to rely on expert guidance when it comes to uh, when it comes to this, and also to 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 kind of like. A, uh, secondly, to kind of um, refer to the comment that you made about skeptical colleagues, etc., mm. is on the other hand, I do think that um, us as public procurement lawyers should continuously look at this trend of social enterprises that's been going on in my, many of the member states. Because what you're seeing there, and also uh, recently an, an internet consultation was public, published in the Netherlands about uh, introducing a legal form or a particular, so a limited f entity uh, as a legal personality, specifically for, they call it a BV maatschappelijk, so a societal limited, uh, which is tailor-made for social enterprises, right? And those are, mm. I think, the entities that really embody this, this aspect of we have a public mission, the public interest is first, we reinvest profits, we do make profits, but we reinvest them for that purpose. Um, so in a way, when we look at, also in the directive, right, the, 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 the contracts that can be directly awarded to those specific entities, um, it's, it's, I think, of interest for the future when we look at these mandatory requirements, right? One, we should, I think, give sufficient tools to the courts to be able to assess it. And in that regard, when we look at all the options, I'm more in favor of concrete norms, so minimum standards on the EU level, right? But I think that we can discuss that again in, a, in another episode, like yeah. what, yeah, what the benefit that, of that is. Well, I guess the, the very short answer that obviously could be elaborated on, but it's like that you're aiming for certain standardization, right? So exactly. ultimately that, that will help. But, you know, just to um, piggyback on the comment on social enterprises, I would just want to point out that, our role is also as, again, academics is to showcase world in a broader sense. And again, procurement not ex does not exist in vacuum, right? And if you look particularly right now in this broadly understood green transition, if you look at the, um, let's say, different banks and different funds that are coming uh, from EU, but also broader, uh, they more and more tie the possibility of getting the funding or getting the loans to the need for green transition. And similarly, also we can see the same thing broadly on private uh, market, right? When we're starting to discuss finance law, when we started to discuss corporate governance and the role of companies and whether the companies are truly to be solely for profit, this traditional argument that have been existing for a long time. But at the same time, opposition to that viewpoint already for more than a decade uh, saying that companies also are part of ecosystem of broader society, right? So, so I think that those are type of arguments that are to be used of saying yes, we move towards more mandatory provisions because this is not something, and and you know to kind of finish our topic on on maybe again a bit more broader high note of saying 
well, we have climate crisis. Those are those are existential challenges, right? Those are not our own transactional, specific transactional or legal interesting topics to dab into. But but this is a part of very big, uh, broader problem. So those are reasons why we need to challenge the status quo and go broader. The question is uh, exactly how to do it in the most beneficial and the most clear way. So the contracting authorities, the suppliers, but also the courts, as you mentioned, have enough tools to actually apply. Yeah, room so, for more episodes, for I sure. think. <laughs> Absolutely. But that's been super interesting. Super interesting. Thanks, uh, Willem, for, for sharing with us also the uh, Dutch example and for the for the more detailed analysis of these cases and the consequences. We warmly invite you to check out the reference to Willem's uh, work in the description of our podcast on our website. Let's move on to our um, dessert for today. So the dessert, tiramisu. Um, the tiramisu of today. <laughs> so something a little bit more connected with broad academic um, life rather than procurement itself, uh, where we dive into to chat a little bit about some things that we find relevant um, as an academics, if that is a type of advice to our younger selves or our younger colleagues up there, or if that is just to start a conversation on some of those topics that hopefully... Uh, are as relevant to broad uh, academic uh, society as we think. And for today, we have the question of, well, what are the basis for our recognition in academia? How we are somehow valued, how we somehow um, are being assessed as an academics. So I will let Willem introduce us, brother, what what uh, this the what he means by this theme, having in mind that that Willem proposed it. So, Willem, do we have problems somewhere? Do we have frustration somewhere? <laughs> no, or let's let's start. I was just, when you were saying that this, I, that, look, um, there's definitely some problems, but I'm not necessarily experiencing those um, uh, greatly. But I do think, on a more broader level, uh, there's some improvement to be made. And the reason why I propose this is also because there's quite a lot of discussions going on at Utrecht University, which I think is the same at many Dutch universities. And I think it's also starting and happening all over the world. And the the idea is, um, so we have this discussion, or at least we have a saying in the Netherlands where you say you need to be a sheep with five, six or seven legs in academia, right? Now, clearly a sheep only has four, right? <laughs> but we're asked to be everything to be academic superstars, right? We need to be amazing research grant writers. We need to do fundamental, excellent empirical research as lawyers. We need to, as legal scholars, we need to be excellent at teaching. We need to be amazing at leadership, at being role models for future researchers or teachers. We need to have impact, right? All, all these type of aspects of our work, uh, which tend to not fit in one FTE a week, right? Um, and so to say the least, to say the least, right now, um, in a way, I think what's also true, and this discussion is very broad, right? And the, the couple of minutes that we have here doesn't attribute to it, I think, or at least doesn't give enough time to discuss it properly. But there's also a difference in what people are good at, right? So some people are just excellent teachers, or some people are amazing at being and at supporting other colleagues, right? So there's also, a, there's a mismatch between being that sheep with 
um, too many legs and what we then recognize and reward in academia, right? So, and this is broader, right? Just not just uh, how you promote it, but also like, what do we value as, as an academic community? And the reason why I wanted to, to, to table this more concretely is because recently at Utrecht, they've tabled a new model and they call it the triple model. And I just wanted to highlight that because I think it's a great initiative to at least get the discussion going. And what this model, uh, this um, default approach to working in academia is, is saying it's there's so many aspects to our work, but in the end, we need to recognize and reward f- six elements of it. One, and it's the acronym of triple, triple model, team, research, impact, professional performance, leadership, and education. And I I think it's not in a particular order. I think they just tried to make a nice acronym, right? Triple. Mm -hmm. So team, research, impact, professional performance, leadership, and education. Those should be all aspects that we value. And if I reflect on that, or at least my experiences so far, is I would say that very often, also in grant application, but also for promotions, it's very much research that dominates, right? I don't know if that's the same same experience that you've had. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, that that's also, you know, in context of any promotion, um, whenever you talk to anyone, everyone always tells you that research, research, research is the thing that, um, get you places. The other things are somehow subordinate to that, right? Yeah. But, and, yeah. but I think it's, it's, it's really interesting that, that the elements that, that you highlighted, I think that, you know, there is something to be said that, um, on the one hand side, I really like what you, what you mentioned that people have different strengths and they're good at different things. It's rarely that we, all really excelling in all these different fields, let's say. But I think there is also part about what really makes your heart sing. Not that it makes yeah. it sounds a bit abstract, but like what makes you happy, right? Look, I was talking like, about sheep with seven legs, so I don't, I look, I don't <laughs> think this is very abstract. Yeah, keep going. So, so you know, some people really love um, teaching, training collaborating broadly, right? Like one of the reasons why for me personally, this podcast works so well, because I'm the type of person that I get so much energy of discussing procurement with you or with other colleagues. And during this conversation that we have, I'm like, oh, this is a good idea. Let me write that down. Let me like dig into it, right? But some other people just want to be left alone so they can, you know, read, they can write and they need space for that and no interruption, right? And 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 I really like this notion that, that you value those things and you introduce more, that, that you, let's say, can become a professor on the basis of just being excellent teacher, right? And just really excelling in that way because uh, we undervalue teaching, training, um, also for professionals, executive programs and so on. For this to be done really well, it actually takes a lot of work, right? So, so, so for sure, there is something to be to be said uh, in that. On other hand, side, I do think that everyone should be at least a little bit at some point in their career nudged to try at least in you know very small scale all of those things because I think a it makes you realize what you prefer and maybe what you're not that good in. But at the same time, I feel like it really also 
uh, gives you an additional layer of respect to people that are doing some other those, of those things. I think management particularly, right? Um, a lot of us run away from management, but I think that the moment that like you are in a position that you lead, if that is a research project, research group or anything of that type, you realize actually how much energy that takes and, and you gain a certain level of appreciation. But But those things don't have anything to do ultimately with your career progression, right? What I just mentioned. Those Ultimately, are often, often those leadership positions are seen as, ooh, am I being, like putting it really roughly, am I being sidetracked? Like yeah. if, if, I, if I do this now, I won't publish much and then it's going to be difficult to, 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 to really get to where I want to be, right? And but this get, is a very true point. Sorry to interrupt you just to make a point of what you said because I personally heard that on many occasions saying, Mara, don't do that yet because that will take way too much of your time and that's not going to help you out to get ultimately professorship. Wait until you are a professor and then think about this type of thing. So you're very, very right that we see that as a distraction. Yeah, and, and often it also leads to really interesting scenarios where people that are amazing researchers are put into positions that where they actually don't flourish but they have to do it, right? So mm. and it's because it's assumed that if you're a professor, you're a great leader. But that's, I think, not true, right? You can be a professor and a great researcher, a greater impact, or greater at being a team player or leading a team, right? So in a way, I think, um, and then we'll have to come to a close for this episode, but um, what I wanted to at least address and maybe get the discussion going, right? Because this is very broad and the discussion in the Netherlands, even though it started, isn't there yet, is this triple model is what are at least, what's the issue we're dealing with, right? Is it that sheep? And is does, does that sheep exist in other parts of the world, right? Yeah. And in the end, what legs are we looking at and how do we value those legs, right? And should we mm. value everything of the... And so, yeah, I think that's that's an interesting discussion for future times to come. Um, Absolutely. I think, you know, to finish our episode and surprisingly tie it back to procurement, I think that on the one hand side, we should introduce a more tailor-made processes, you know. Tell me what you're really good out of this toolbox of options. How are you going to excel? Are we going to... Uh, measure you and assess you on that basis. On the other hand side, from management perspective, I see a challenge because it's as variance in procurements, right? How you're making sure that you comparing the same? Um, well, how you compare apples and oranges is, you know, how you can do that. So it's a challenge. But I think, yeah, to conclude, we are all unique and we have strengths and preferences in different aspects of academic life. Let us excel in where we're really good and happy and let the others do the parts that don't force us to do the parts that we're really not keen on, I guess, right? <laughs> I have nothing more to add to that. Very nice okay. summary. Awesome. Well, thanks, Willem. Uh, thanks to our listeners. This was the Stack Public Procurement Podcast. This was the Stack, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? And share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com.